to Matthew chapter 7. If you're visiting with us today and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we're so glad to have you. Uh, So we've printed that text for you on your worship guide on page 9 so you can find it more easily. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those Bibles in front of you on the pew rack and take it home. We would love for you to have that um, as a gift from us. This is God's Word, Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 12. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Please be seated. Let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing on His Word. Preach, would you pray with me one more time? Father, as we come to Your Word, it is the voice of Jesus that we long to hear, for His voice calls into existence things that are not out of nothing. His voice causes new life to be born in the hearts of spiritually dead people. His voice is the one that empowers and leads. And so, oh, by your Spirit, make our ears alive that we might hear Jesus speaking through his word. Do this, oh, Father, for we need you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the themes that we keep hitting over and over again is that Jesus is making new people, and he's making new people who do new things, that Christianity isn't just about adopting a certain uh, moral system or belief structure, it involves those things, but what Jesus is doing is not making good people better or bad people a little bit better, he is making new people And he's making new people who live life in a new way, who actually do life differently. The way of Jesus, as we've been seeing through the Sermon on the Mount, is upside down. It's countercultural, but it is the way of flourishing. That's what the Sermon on the Mount encompasses for us. It tells us that God the Son has come into the world. This is God the Son speaking, and when he speaks, he's speaking with the power of the new creation because that's what he brought. He brought the kingdom of God. It is at hand in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as such, as God the Son come into the world, he's making all things new. And the Sermon on the Mount is the new way. It is the way of flourishing, the way of human flourishing in the kingdom of God. And there's good news here because verse 12, if you're getting tired of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 12 is the beginning of the end. Just a few more weeks, we're done. Jesus in verse 12 is transitioning into his closing comments. He's wrapping up his message. And he structured his sermon in a very particular kind of way. He's given us introductory comments and the beatitude. He sort of structured who the people of his kingdom are, who the new people, kind of what they inhabit. We'll come back to that in a second. But he structured it in this way. At the beginning of the sermon in 517, he said he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he's come to fulfill it. 
And then now in verse 12, as he's transitioning into the end, he brings up the law and the prophets again forever. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. For this is the summary. For in this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is making a new people who do new things, who live their lives with a new heart according to God's word. He's just expanding what the Old Testament scriptures teach. Jesus is making a new people. He's making a new people who live life differently, who are actually doing life differently. And I think as I get older in Christ, I'm realizing how much faith in Christ really necessitates a change of behavior. Jesus just doesn't let one who is his follower sit on the fence. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, he's in this passage particularly, he's cutting straight through that. He says, you can't just sit on the fence anymore. You have to have your life changed by me. And I think I've been particularly guilty over my life of, of overemphasizing the intellectual component of faith in Jesus Christ. And there's good reasons for that, right? Faith in Jesus involves a belief structure, Jesus commends a particular way of thinking, of believing. But Jesus has come to do more than just change our head and more than just change our heart. He has come to change our hands and feet as well. In fact, when Jesus is most critical about in his ministry, he's often most critical about two different kinds of people. He's most critical about people who think that the Christian life is just about pulling up your bootstraps and trying harder. They work, but they don't work by faith. Or those who equate faith with just resting and not doing anything. And so think of it this way. Jesus is creating a new people who do life differently because God's grace is at work. God's grace, right? Kind of throw that term around. What do we mean by that? Well, I think that the best way to summarize it, the way I would summarize it, is this. God's grace is God's redemptive working on sin-cursed people, on behalf of sin-cursed people. It's his work to redeem. And so faith receives God's grace. I receive by faith. I'm trusting you. I'm entrusting myself, Lord Jesus, into your hands. And so I'm entrusting myself that your grace will be at work for me and in me. But when grace is received, it is changing our lives. When God is at work in us, we begin to work differently. We begin to live life differently. Jesus is making a new people who do life in a new way. And so what he's calling us to, and as we're transitioning into the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's calling us into action by telling us very stark ways over the next few weeks, there's only two ways forward. There's the way of Jesus, and there's the way of the world. And he creates this contrast between two journeys in this passage. Two gates, two different gates that lead to two different roads that lead to two different ends. There's two journeys. And this is a sort of the contrasting. This is an ancient Jewish way of teaching wisdom. Contrasting two different ways of life. A good example is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous prosper. They're like a tree planted by streams of water. The way of the wicked are like burnout chaff that the wind just blows away because there's no substance to them. 
And the way of the righteous is the one they prosper because they meditate on God's law day and night the way the wicked are not so. It shows there's two different journeys, there's two different gates, there's two different ends. And the rest of chapter 7 really is a, a series of contrasts coupled with a series of warnings that are meant to lead us to do life differently, a call to action, if you will. And so he begins this transition into the closing part of his sermon. So he doesn't just want us to be hearers, he actually wants us to be doers. And so he's calling us to action, and he begins that transition in verse 12 with this pithy, ethical statement. It's quite popular. Even if you're not a Christian, you've heard these words before, probably. You're probably familiar with them. Oftentimes we call it the golden rule. Verse 12 So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Such a a simple call to discipleship, isn't it? It's easy to memorize. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Smallest child, just learning to speak, can articulate this. It's very simple, pithy, yet profound. So profound that a child who learns it and begins to live by it, will also find that the oldest saint in Christ will struggle with it. It's simple but profound. And so the gospel, what it does, and this is what Jesus is doing, because I just think this is a brilliant move here on his part. Of course it's brilliant. It's Jesus. He's the Son of God, right? It's profound in this way. He assuming that the gospel should be, will be, turning us inside out. It turns us inside out by exposing, and he's going to do this in just a second as we look at this pithy statement. It's going to turn us inside out by exposing just how deeply selfish we are. The selfishness that remains hidden in our hearts, Jesus is constantly exposing. This is the way of the kingdom, but he also turns us inside out, not just by exposing us, but also turning the momentum of our hearts that were once inward, outward towards others. I once read an author who tried to improve on the golden rule by creating the platinum rule, right? Gold and platinum. And he said, okay, so the platinum rule is this. Do to others what they want you to do for them. And that sounds, I mean, that sounds profound when you think about it. I mean, just go ask, what do they want? Do that for them. But Jesus is, I think, a much more realistic view of human nature that's encapsulated in the saying, in the golden rule. Jesus assumes that we are such deeply selfish people that there's a lot of momentum of care in our hearts. It's just care for ourselves. He assumes that we spend the bulk of our time caring about our own concerns, thinking and dreaming about having our own needs met, demanding our own desires. From the first word that a child learns are often no and mine. And Jesus assumes that's what's in our hearts. The marriage that falls apart because you're just not meeting my needs anymore. Jesus' assumption is the thing that gets in the way of us caring for others. It's because we're spending all of our time caring for ourselves. He assumes that about us. And so he just runs with that assumption. It's like spiritual judo. And he says this, whatever you wish others would do for you. Judo takes the momentum of somebody else and turns it against them. 
You know how to think about the needs of others because you're constantly thinking about your own needs. Now, turn that on its head. Take the natural momentum of your own heart and turn it around. So the gospel demands that we get turned inside out. Do also for them. So I loved our Old Testament reading that one of our elders read, Thomas Quinn read this morning from Leviticus 19. Care for others. Don't, don't take all of the, the produce from your field, leave some of it for others. Don't, don't favor the poor or the rich. Show righteousness and justice to others. Live your life in such a way that they're other focused. It's always the way of the kingdom. It's the way of human flourishing. And Jesus says, you know how this works, right? I mean, you want to be appreciated. You know in your heart that when you are appreciated and honored, your heart leaps for joy because you feel a sense of shame going away and embrace coming in. And Jesus says, good. Now go do that for others. You know how love can secure you and empower you when you have been the object of someone's affection? Good. Now go do that for others. Quit trying to crave in such a way that you're meeting your own needs. And it's Jesus' power. It's working to turn this inside out. Free us from thinking this way. Because the gospel comes in and it says to us this. God has honored you when you were the at your worst, right? Isn't that the thing that we long for the most? Embrace me at my worst. I mean, it's the craving of my heart. Embrace me at my worst, because if I'm loved at my worst, then I am secure. And the gospel comes in and it says to us, that deep craving of your heart, trying to get it from other people, God has given it to you in Jesus Christ. For while you were his enemies, hating him in rebellion against him, he did this, he sent his son to die for you. So that you could become sons and daughters, objects of his affection. And he has so done this for his people. It's a self-giving love that the father has for his children. And so the gospel comes in and says, quit trying to fill your love tank with other people. Because your love tank is already full in Jesus Christ. It's overflowing with an eternal, abundant love of God. He has so loved you that he has shed his love abroad in his heart, your heart, through the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more that could be added to your love tank. So go now and do for others what you wish they would do for you. You've been freed in Christ. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. It's such an easy thing. What you've got to do is stop just for a second and think, okay, what would I want done to me? God has done that for me in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to go do that for others. Just a short stop to reflect for a moment on what love looks like because you want to be loved, what love looks like because you have been loved in Jesus Christ. And then what love looks like as you express it to others. It's such a simple ethic, isn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's such a simple ethic. It's such a simple way of living. Imagine a world like this. A world where you put this into practice. I mean, wars would cease. I mean, who wants bombs lobbed at them? Well, I'm not going to lob bombs at another. Or end of poverty or siblings would stop fighting with each other or marriages would 
fall, never fall apart and no single person would ever be lonely again because who wants to be lonely? So I'm going to show love. It's such a simple ethic that would radically change the world. But again, Jesus is very realistic about human nature. This type of life, this kind of other-centered, selfless, does not come naturally to any of us. And so he goes on. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are by it are many. But for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The sort of living that he's describing in verse 12, he, re- he understands runs so contrary to what is born into any of our hearts, so contrary to the momentum of our lives, that only a few will enter it. And then when they get on this journey, they're going to find that the road is hard. But at the end of it, there is a reward that is worth it. Most will choose the easy way, right? Most will choose the easy way. This is saying that, that, that gate is wide. And that road is easy, the way of self-fulfillment and self-care and self-ambition. While that journey is easier and that gate is wider, that road will lead to your destruction and judgment. If you're not a Christian, let me address you for a second. Don't let anyone sell you on a cheap and easy Christian life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to count the cost as well as the reward. The reward is great. He's promising it here. Life, right? Follow Jesus, the end will be life. And when, when Jesus says life, he means the kind of life that is in God himself. Life that is abundant and overflowing and deeply satisfying and flourishing and eternal. It has no end. But the gate into this life is narrow. And that road is hard. It's easy to get overwhelmed at this point and think, man, that gate is impossibly narrow. And that way, too difficult. Except for a few spiritual giants, right? It's easy to think that at this point. Like, I've got to be a spiritual giant, and I'm not that, so I can't enter this gate or walk on this road. I won't make it. Well, that's why it's always dangerous to take the Bible out of context. Whenever you isolate passages from each other, you end up in dangerous water. So you can't divorce this call to action from the Beatitudes of Jesus' introduction. See, the first four Beatitudes really cause the frame of this gate. The last four Beatitudes frame the way, the hard road. And the gate is narrow. And Jesus says only a few will enter it, not because only a few are spiritual giants, but because our pride gets in the way of admitting how spiritually impoverished we are. The gate's narrow. It's not high. It's not a gate into a life with Jesus and human flourishing that you have to climb. It's a gate that's narrow, so you have to shed things. You need to come empty-handed. And so he reminds us, the gate works like this. Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who say, I have got nothing good in me. Jesus says, welcome, enter the gate. The kingdom of God belongs to you who are without any goodness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Enter into this gate if you find yourself grieving over the fact that you have offended a holy God. Come in, you belong. Blessed are those who are meek, see no good in themselves, don't see themselves as giants, but as failures. They're the ones, when they enter this gate, will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they look inside and say, I am devoid of any righteousness of my own. And will enter this gate, they'll be satisfied. It's not a high gate, it's a narrow gate. And the reason it's narrow is because only a few are willing to admit that they are broken enough to need Jesus. The gate's narrow. You're going to have to shed your self-dependence. It will get hung up on that gate. You're going to have to shed your sense of accomplishment. It will get hung up on that gate. You can carry the baggage of your brokenness and your sin through this narrow gate, but you cannot carry your pride. This journey is a journey of dependence on Jesus. And the way is hard. The gate is narrow, the way is hard. And Jesus has already warned us that if you're going to follow him and enter in the gate and receive the reward of life at the end, Jesus has already warned us this is what you're going to face. You're going to face persecution. It awaits his people. People will be reviled and falsely accused. You can't enter the Christian life thinking, um, I'm going to make Jesus appealing to the masses. The way of the kingdom is always countercultural. If you want Jesus to be pleasing to the world, you will lose both the world. You'll gain the world, but you'll lose Jesus. Friends, co-workers, families will think you're weird if you're going to follow Jesus. The life of flourishing is always countercultural. It's always upside down. It will not make sense to those who are not on the road with you. There's another road. It's a wide road. Many walk on it, find it easy. Friends, family, co-workers, they'll turn against you. And the, and the way of Jesus is hard. Not just because of what you will receive on the outside, but because it is a genuine struggle on the inside as well. It's hard because it requires us to take up the hardest kind of work, dying to ourselves, putting others first. And so those who find it are few. Few. You can have this assurance, though. And if you're if you're if you're sitting, if you're sitting here wondering, join us in this journey. I mean, this is a journey that leads to life. And the end is a profound contrast. It's the easy way that leads to destruction and the the hard way through the narrow gate that leads to life. And what Jesus is doing is he's putting the goal in front of us. There's a rule when you're running a race, a foot race. I don't know why people do this, but there is this rule if you're going to run a race. I don't want to run if someone's chasing me or if I've eaten too much for lunch. But some people actually enjoy this. And the rule is, if, you're hit a, if you hit a, a hill, a hard hill, don't look down. Look at the top of the hill. It'll carry you through the hard work in front of you. 
The destination will carry you along. And this is what Jesus is doing. It's hard work. You've entered the narrow gate. You've entered the hard way, but it's, it's hard work. But keep your eyes fixed on what's coming. It's life. That's what's promised at the end. When you die, you'll find yourself. A seed sown into the ground dies and bears much fruit. It's a hard way, but it's a life that gives perspective. It's a life of love. Imagine if you, you hear these words like, of the easy way and it's coming to the judgment you think what a harsh thing to say this act of love of Jesus to put that end in sight too this is where it's going you might find it easy right now you can keep going that way but you need to know what's coming Jesus is doing you watch a horror movie and you know they're in the story so they they don't know what's coming and you see them walking up the stairs to the attic and you want to scream out don't open the door you know what's on the other side well, this is what Jesus is doing. He's pulling us out of the story and saying, look, it's a, it's a wide road. Everyone's going down it. It's an easy road. You won't find it difficult. But I need to tell you, don't open that door. Your destruction is at the end. It's the narrow way through the hard road that leads to life in abundance, the kind of life that is in God himself. But that road, hard road, has its advantages again context is important again it's always important when studying the bible and you see in verse 12 jesus starts this way so when you see that it means he's linking that's a linking word it links us back to the passage this is an implication of what has just he has just said sometimes in your bible if you've got your bible in front of you there will be a a paragraph heading and bold print um that section heading is helpful. It can help you find yourself in your Bible, but sometimes it breaks up trains of thought, and this is one of those situations. We skipped over this passage because we'd hit on it so many times when we were studying the Lord's Prayer, but this is a deep promise. The hard road has a benefit. Ask, Jesus says, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, It will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened or which of you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask so whatever you wish others would do to you God the Father has promised his children, I will provide for you on the hard road. When we trivialize this and make it about getting a bigger house or a better paying job, then we'll never pray the way that brings God in his life-giving presence near to us that we might flourish on the hard road. The hard road is hard, but precisely because it's hard, it is the way of flourishing because God comes near and provides Father, the road's too difficult for me. I'm drowning under the difficulty of this road. So I'm knocking. I'm asking. Help me. I'm desperate. The door will be open for you. That's the promise. The Father will provide. And you might ask yourself, how can I know? That's not always been my experience. How do you know 
How can you be sure in the midst of job loss, health problems, estrangement from family because you're trying to be faithful to Jesus, mocking from your coworkers? And the Father says, Jesus says, look, any of you, when your children are suffering, you want to alleviate that burden, don't you? And if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven provide for your every need at just the right time? It's all of grace. You see this now? Entrance by onto the life of flourishing that leads to life in abundance, eternal life, life with God, life of God in us. It's all of grace. I shed my pride because Jesus is enough. His death on the cross covers all of my sins. It's all of grace. I enter the narrow gate. I can shed it all. Burdened with my sin, shedding my selfishness. And then the road, it's hard, but I travel it by God's grace, and the reward at the end is also by the grace of God. Earned by Jesus Christ waiting there for all who belong to him. It is secure, kept in heaven, imperishable, can't be touched. Moth won't break in and eat it. Rust won't destroy it. Earned by Jesus, kept by Jesus. The gate, the road, the reward. It's all of grace. Our closing hymn goes like this. So so good. I'm so glad Chris picked it. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He, get this, must hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned aside when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. If you don't know Jesus, enter the narrow gate with us. Walk the hard road, for its end leads to life. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need you. What you call us to is greater than any of us have the capacity to do. And so, oh, Savior, with the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, turn us inside out so that we might consider others better than ourselves that we might meet their needs and love them because you have met our needs and loved us. This hard road is all of your grace. And so come work and make us doers, not just hearers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.